Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today on this first edition of the second series of the Law in Crisis webinars hosted by the University of Ghana. Um, today we will be looking at election manifestos and we will be looking at, um, we will be talking around how they are put together, what they are put together, what they are put together, and um, um, all that they play in our democracy and how to make them, to optimize that. Um, we, we have a very um, erudite panel. I am very honored to be hosting this panel. And so I shall introduce my panelists to you. Um, I have from start from Odikro, Kina Likimani. Kina is the director um, at Odikro and Odikro is a parliamentary monitoring organization. She's also the programs officer for Mba Sem Foundation, which works to support and promote um, women's writing. When, whenever Ghana is about to have an election, she moderates Ghana Decides, which is a nonpartisan project focused on fostering a better informed electorate using online social media tools. Um, so to give you a, a clearer background of what Odikro does, Odikro monitors how parliament um, runs, how parliamentarians contribute to parliamentary discussions, um, who takes what position, who does not speak at all, and um, helps us to keep our parliamentarians accountable. Kina is passionate about the social media space and its role in development and the literary arts. Um, and so she's an advocate for the literary arts. She holds degrees from Smith College and Columbia University in the U US. Prior to her return to Ghana um, in 2004, she worked at Columbia University um, in the field of medical informatics and technology transfer. And so clearly you can understand how she, why she's passionate about social media. And given this wealth of information, of um, expertise, um, we look forward to how she, she engages with the, the questions to this afternoon. Welcome, um, Kina. Thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. Thank um, you. Our next panelist is Dr. Nimoy Thompson. Dr. Nimoy Thompson is former Director General of the National Development um, Planning Commission, NDPC. And he is a member of former President um, John, John Mahama's Economic Advisory Group. Dr. Thompson's previous engagements include his position as senior economic advisor in South Africa to the UNDP, United Nations Development Program, and as senior economist at the New York State Bureau of Fiscal and Economic Analysis. He has um, spent a considerable amount of time with um, helping political parties develop their electoral platforms. And so he's quite, um, quite suited to speak to this matter. And he has served as the chairman of the CPP's manifesto committee. Dr. Nimoy Thompson holds a doctorate in development economics and public policy from the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, Dr. Nimoy Thompson. Thank you very much for having me on the panel. Um, our next panelist is Dr. Mame Jeche Jandor. Dr. Jeche Jandor is a senior lecturer and the head of the Department of Political Science at the University of Ghana. She, her specialization, sorry, are comparative politics, politics of the developing world, democratization, democracy and elections in Africa, and civil society and its role in elections. Um, again, a panelist very, very suited to discuss today's topic. Her current research covers civil society and its relationship with government 
the state, civil society, and its role in elections, elections and democracy in Ghana, and the role of the international community in Ghana's democratization, as well as explaining the death of, the death of women's political participation in Ghana. Um, so I'm, I'm particularly because her interest is in, is in looking at political participation um, of women, I'm very, very keen to, to speak to Dr. Jechidando today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jechidando. And um, my final panelist is um, Dr. Ibrahim Tanko Amidu, who's the program director and acting CEO of Star Ghana Foundation. Um, and he will give us a short message from Star Ghana. So I will let him do more, most of the talking about um, what Star Ghana does and what his role there is. Um, so before we go on, we are joined by the Dean of the University of Ghana, who will, it will tell you more about why this, the, the, faculty, the School of Law at the University of Ghana has taken on this very important project. Good afternoon, Dr. Uh, Professor Atuguba. And good, af good afternoon to the panelists and all the participants. I don't like to take too much time. I would just like to say thank you to Mouse and the team who have been engaged in organizing this series of webinars on our elections. I'd also want to thank each of the panelists, whom I know quite well, for agreeing to do this. We feel that the School of Law at the University of Ghana must take a more central role in the discourse around critical national events, such as elections. We have a critical election coming up, and our aim is to ensure that we contribute to the debate in a sober, analytical, dispassionate manner. You can see this in the composition of the panel. So without taking too much time, I'd want to say Thank you again to all the panelists for agreeing to do this. Um, thank you, Professor Atukuba, for giving us this platform on which to have this discussion, which I hope will be very rewarding. Um, Dr. Dr. Tanko, we would be um, we we would like to hear from you um, about Star Ghana and its role in this. In this series. All right, thank you very much. Um, good afternoon to everyone. Um, I am Alaji Tanko, not uh, Dr. Tanko, but I'll gladly treat the Alaji for a doctorate if um, you would award me one. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure for Star Ghana to be associated with this um, series. Um, the Star Ghana Foundation is a national center for active citizenship and local philanthropy and was uh, set up to follow on from um, the work of the Star Ghana program. The program has since 2012 provided support to civil society in Ghana around the um, elections. Uh, so we've had um, support to civil society in 2012, in 2016, and now in 2020. Um, in 2020, what we decided to do is that in addition to the projects that we are supporting across the length and breadth of the country, aimed at contributing to credible, inclusive, and issue-based elections. We're also supporting convenings, stakeholder dialogues around the critical issues that um, underpin, underline, uh, influence um, our elections. 
and um, the issue of uh, manifesto accountability has uh, been one that has been thrown up in various discussions that requires um, this dialogue and a way forward as to how we can hold the parties accountable, not just for the, the manifestos, but also even the process of uh, the development of uh, this manifesto. So it's our pleasure to partner with the Ghana School of Law to um, take the University of Ghana School of Law to take this forward. This is one amongst a number of um, convenings, webinars that we are planning with uh, the School of Law. And we look forward to um, the various conversations that will take place. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Alaji. <laughs> Alaji Sako. Um, for those who have just joined us, I was introducing our panel. We have Kina Likimani, Dr. Nimoy Thompson, um, Dr. Mame Jechijando, um, um, Alaji Amiditenko, and um, Dr. Emmanuel Akwete, who I hadn't introduced yet. So I shall say a quick, give you a quick introduction to what Dr. Akwete's background is. Dr. Emmanuel Akwete is the founding executive director of the Institute of Democratic Governance, IDEG. IDEG is one of our leading research and advocacy um, organizations. Um, and Dr. Akwete has for more than two decades led policy research around democratic governance and human development, civic participation, incredible management of multi-party elections, political and administrative transitions, and international aid and development effectiveness. Um, Dr. Akwete's expertise has been tapped um, by very um, high level players such as the government of Ghana, the African Capacity Building Foundation, the government of Liberia, um, many bilateral donor agencies in the UNDP. He has facilitated high-level policy dialogue among civil society, African governments, and development partners. Dr. Akwete holds a PhD in international politics and development from the University of Stockholm in Sweden. Thank you very much for um, accepting our invitation, Dr. Akwete. So, hello, Dr. Akwete, can you hear me? His mic is not on, his mic is off. Hello, Dr. Akwete, can you hear us? If you can hear us, can you please? Um, now it's on. Audio, yes. Uh, Welcome to the panel, sir. Thank you, thank you. Can you hear me now? We do, we do. Okay, thanks. I think this thing should come forward a bit more. Is that okay? Right. So today's discussion, um, as I said earlier, is isolating the, that, that thing that we call a manifesto. We hear it every election time, the parties launch their manifestos, there's a big brouhaha, the party colors and um, dances in the street, um, and then we move on to the election and people talk about what the manifesto contained and the manifesto promises and the manifesto promises. Um, but for a large number of people, what exactly the manifesto is, is not um, entirely clear. We just know that it's something that every party has and talks about going into the election. After the election, we don't hear as much about the manifesto. The next time we hear about the manifesto again is when we start preparing for the next set of elections. So I thought a good place to start today would be for our um, very well qualified panel to explain to our, our audience what exactly a manifesto is. So um, I will start with um, 
Dr. Mamejeche Jando, if you don't mind, what exactly is a manifesto? Mm. Thank you very much, uh, Mami. Um, if I can call you so, I think, oh, Mami Abna. Mami, I prefer uh, Mami. Mami, okay. And I'm Mami also. Um, so, what, what is a manifesto? Um, a manifesto, um, if derived from Latin itself, meaning manifest, uh, that Latin manifestum simply means clear or conspicuous. Um, and it refers to a published declaration of a party's intentions, motives, or views. <clears throat> In this case, we are talking about political parties. So it could be an individual group, political party, or government's intentions. But um, here we are talking about political parties and governments. So it's a published declaration of the intentions, motives, or views of the political party or government. And um, it's, it is very important in the sense that over the years, when we have elections and we fight elections through manifestos, this makes political parties quite pro programmatic. Um, in fact, from the literature, um, you find that it is good to have manifestos because they ensure accountable and responsible governance. They help confer mandates on successful parties. They can also foster intra-party democracy because um, party, um, you know, big wigs and small wigs, if there's a word like that, all join to contribute to uh, making input into the manifesto. Manifestos can also be used to help force change, uh, sometimes on reluctant uh, civil servants. So most of the time we tend to know more about the contest, contents of manifestos, like we uh, remember the contents of the manifestos of the two major parties in Ghana, for instance, the NPP, the Nas uh, New Patriotic Party and the National Democratic Congress. But there's a little bit of um, a gap in terms of how, what we know about how these manifestos are put together how these manifestos are written. And so this is something that we want to look at as well. Thank you. Thank you, um, thank you very much, Dr. Um, Jeshi Jando. Um, Emmanuel, if I may ask, from what um, Dr. Jeshi Jando said, does that mean the manifesto is a document, a single document? Is that what it is? Um, yes, in a way, because you see it published as a pamphlet, mm. as um, you don't see it as a treatise, a thick book, and they try to simplify it. Uh, but I think in our context, I would say that manifestos have never gained the prominence they've gained in this election. Um, in previous time, it was a secret document. You heard about it, but you didn't see. The majority of the population and the electorate hardly see the manifesto document. Um, it's, sometimes when it's launched, it comes with a lot of fanfare and mistake. Uh, sometimes some put blood on the manifesto to show their commitment to it. Others just mention it. And I had a situation once where I was talking to a very prominent uh, member of uh, the two parties. One, one of them, I, I don't want to get into party names yet. And he said to me that 
Emmanuel, why are you fascinated about manifestos and asking so many questions and you think they should be held accountable and say, if you can tell me or find 3% of the leadership of our party who have read the manifesto and have seen it and know it, I would give you so much money for you to do this manifesto work. And it used to be published very late, sometimes two weeks to elections. And there was always fear that if you publish your manifestos early, your ideas will be stolen. So it wasn't seen as a document containing a set of proposals, potential public policies, that if a party is elected, is going to be implemented, and that ought to be debated. It's like something that you must only put out, uh, you know, uh, in bits and pieces. Uh, since uh, maybe last year, we've seen that manifestos have become gaining prominence and being put out a lot of more uh, because all the parties have been referring to what sixteen manifesto, elections manifesto, and that's what they are going to implement. And of saying the party has a manifesto and once elected, Hey, my internet connection is unstable. Do you hear me? Hello, do you hear yes, me? You were, you, were, you were dipping in and out for a Hello, do you hear me? Yes, we can. You were dipping out for half a second, but we can hear you perfectly fine. Hello, you hear me now? Yes. yes you so, do. so the media, the media have some, somehow, they get hold of the manifestos. They know it more than the members of the party, including the executive. And the processes of producing this document itself is a bit secretive. Um, I'm happy Nimoy has experience doing it on uh, CPP, uh, for CPP, and I hope you can tell us how open it had become in this day of NDC. But I think the important point I want to make is that it's a, a document whose content is least known to the electorate before they vote, either because it was published very close to elections or nobody took interest in it. And so it was even thought to be useless. But manifestos, people don't vote on the basis of manifestos, okay? Because they never see it, and they can't, many can't read it, and it's never discussed in any detail. Party members themselves don't know. It's often a small group. So it's the media that try to look at 100 days and what you have achieved, and they will refer to your manifesto, and they've popularized it a bit. But come to think of it, yes, it's a document, but whose contents are not known and have not been thought to be shaping the decisions that the electorate makes. Somehow it's changed now. Mommy, mm. I can see you. That, yeah, that, because it leads me to an illustration question I was going to let um, Nina jump in on, which is as a, as a monitor, uh, as a person who's monitored elections, if the manifesto is such a little known document and if within the party itself, um, there's such little consideration and, and, and respect for it, then what role does it play in our democratization? What role um, does, actually, I would like Dr. Dr. Jesse Jando to, to, to join in on this after Kina speaks, that in, in, in the wider context of politics generally and democratic theory, what role is the manifesto supposed to play? Um, and I'd like, Kina, if you don't mind addressing the question, what role have you observed it playing in our elections um, factually? Okay, so we can assume that the role it's supposed to play is two, possibly twofold. 
One is to inform the electorate about what a party's agenda will be. And, that's, and, and that statement is problematic. I'll come back to it. And then the second one would be, it would be to judge the party that came into power, their um, achievements and work in light of what they said their manifesto will be. But uh, like so many things about our democracy, it's a shiny object that does not deliver. And I think that some of it could be that in, in the absence of, I suppose, ideologies and kind of concrete plans, civil society and the media have made more of the manifesto than, like Emmanuel has said, the parties themselves. My main problem with the manifesto is I don't know who owns the manifesto. Mm. If we look at, you know, the most important document Ghana has, our constitution, I know it belongs to the people of Ghana, and I know if I have problems with it, I can go to the Supreme Court for interpretation. I do not know, and I've been monitoring elections, I don't know who owns the manifesto. And when I say, when I, my first point about it's to tell us what a party intends to do, while we vote in, we don't vote in parties. <laughs> we vote in an executive, and then we, we have a majority in parliament. So for me, the manifesto is so problematic because it's not the party that is coming to run the country. It's the executive. And I'm, and I'm never clear as to whether it's the candidates have made input to it. And when push comes to shove, is that their final word document? So. Again, it's a shiny object and it seems to, I mean, I don't know whether it's added to a democracy. I certainly don't see it guiding the majority in parliament. It is not obvious even when the minority is opposing the majority that they are doing so from an informed position of their manifesto. Um, so, and so, yeah. Does that answer the question? You say that in your election monitoring, you would have not encountered a space where you would say, oh, here's the impact the manifesto made on this particular electorate or this particular demographic of the electorate. Do you, do you think that it makes... I have never seen that. But, she, but, 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 but then, let's just suppose that we all knew that the candidates, for, I think for the three times he was the NPP candidate, Nane Kufadu said he would do free SHS. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the manifesto, because he said, he said, he said, he said, he did. Then, but then when you look at the larger manifesto, you see, it's, we need to separate this out between the party and the person who wins the election. The first thing we need to be clear on is, is the manifesto the course of action for the executive who wins the election? Is it to guide M the MPs when they, when they are in the majority? I am... I'm unclear, and if I'm unclear, I don't know what, what the ordinary, because this is like my field of work. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that question a little further in the discussion. I, I was going to ask um, Dr. Jechijando now if she can share a bit more, a bit of a theoretical um, framework for us on in democratic theory, what is the point in the manifesto? Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Mami. So, um, simply put, you know, democracy is um it's about three key things you know freedoms competition and participation so just simply put um the elections provide as um, political parties the opportunity to uh, compete amongst each other um 
to win, uh, you know, the government uh, seat. And we also have participation. It affords participation of the voters or the electorate in selecting who their leaders will be. And then, of course, liberty, freedom is very, very important. Um, we want um, democracy to promote freedoms and rights of the people. Now, um, embedded in all this is the idea of um, accountability. And in fact, uh, democracy, this um, theory and practice of democracy really emerged out of this notion of a social contract. So I would say that a manifesto, I, I think it has been, it's becoming increasingly important. And in democratic theory, what does it do? It helps to definitely um, promote a reference point, provide a reference point for holding the party or government, the party in government accountable. Um, it also helps put the focus on issues, issues rather than um, personal, uh, you know, um, insults and so on. What are the issues? What does the particular party want to do? Um, so it encourages issue-based campaigns and provides the electorate very, very important um, it provides the electorate information on what their party um, priorities, their pa uh, party priorities are and what the party will do. So yes, in the past, manifestos uh, were uh, a kind of secret. We only heard about them. Um, we, we didn't even hear about any formal manifestos, but I would argue that in the last uh, two elections, particularly in the 2016 election and before, we've had increasingly party manifestos coming uh, to the fore. And this has really been helpful. If you recall the um, IEA, Institute of Economic Affairs, presidential debates, they afforded the um, electorate um, a view of the candidates, who the candidates are, the parties, and particularly their manifestos. And I'll, I'd argue that particularly in the most recent election, um, based on the manifesto, the fact that a manifesto could be put together um, that had certain clear um, bullet points and clear so, sort of, uh, how should I say it, um, that were put in slogans and so on. It, even though the manifesto, let, let's, let, let me come back to it, even though the manifesto is really a strategic document that a political party puts together, usually by sophisticated political party elites. And most of the time, the masses may not necessarily read it. They can't read it. A lot of them cannot read it. But when you have the manifesto, it provides a one, um, how should I say it, a unified um, package for people, members of the political party to um, move into and stand by. So a manifesto, again, serves as a compendium of valid party uh, positions. It can be a useful tool for party candidates and activists so that when there is some kind of uh, discrepancy, political party candidates can um, fit into that. So to answer your question uh, or to, to reiterate, political party man manifestos are very, very important. I would say um, they have been important in other parts of the world for many, you know, in, in the Western parts of the world for many decades. They have constituted um, uh, the basically they have constituted a also a document that political parties can use 
to ease the job of their candidates. It really allows them to, de to be able to devote more time to actual campaigning once mm. there's a manifesto there. It's mm. also the only authoritative party policy statement approved by an official convention or Congress. For instance, in the US, you have the party, what they call the party platform. That is um, where the parties, uh, Democratic or Republican parties, um, program is put there. It's like the manifesto. So in the last elections, for instance, people knew about the NPP, New Patriotic Party government's manifesto, for instance. I think the media and um, other forms, uh, the media and other forms of communication helped bring this out. And you had these key slogans, one party, uh, what, one district, one factory, one village, one dam, and so on and so forth. And these are key slogans that help. And then of course the free SHS, for instance, free senior high school policy. So it afforded, I would say, argue that it afforded um, voters something to look at, policies that they can look at and expect from uh, the government. And governments also in a sense, begin to think about the fact that they will be held accountable. And so you can see that, for instance, the current government really put a premium on uh, implementing the free senior high school um, policy, okay. for instance. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but no, no, I think you. it's definitely very, very important. Thank you. So I will thank come you. back to some of the thoughts that you raised in that. But um, I have the one, one, the one person on my panel who, who could tell me in, in practice what role the um, the, the manifesto has played in, in, in a political party's journey um, is Dr. Nimoy Thompson, and I would really like to hear from him um, right now. Dr. Thompson, how, in your experience, has the manifesto um, contributed to a party's journey in an election? And what, um, oh, what, did it create, what relationship did it create between the electorate and the party, if any? Well, thank you. Um, and speaking of Kukunankakai, maybe I should go into my electronic Kukunankakai and share the first uh, manifesto in our history, the CPP manifesto of 1951. And what it stood for, the, the name was Yen Arai Assassin. And of course, it was devoted, among other things, to overthrowing the imperialist government and so forth and so on. Uh, but there was a, a couple of places that, that I'd like to quote before I even get into contemporary uh, manifestos in our politics. There's a, a section B, page two. It says, the this is for February 1951. It says, the Convention People's Party aims at launching a five-year economic program for both social and economic development of this country in order to afford the people uh, an increasingly higher standard of living, which has long been denied to them under the crown colony system of government, all right? And then it goes on and on. And here is very interesting. For the first time in 1951, we talk about free secondary school uh, education. Elementary and secondary school education, as well as trade and technical school will be free. This is under a title called scholarship. So you see what they say that uh, there's nothing new under the sun. This is something that's been around for nearly 70 years. It took us that long to actually get to that. But the critical point I would like to draw here is that they make specific reference to an economic or a development plan independently of the manifesto. And this is what is relevant within our contemporary political system. 
you did ask a number of questions. Yes, the manifesto, as it is being prepared and presented within the uh, Fourth Republic, is a party document, not a government document. But once a, a, a president has been elected, Article 36, uh, 5, Clause 5 of the Constitution says that for the purposes of the foregoing clauses of this article, within two years after assuming office, the president shall present to parliament a coordinated program of economic and social development policies, the same language used in 1951, including agricultural and industrial programs at all levels and in the region, in all regions of Ghana. So in practice, what has been happening is that after everything you've talked about, the, the role of the manifesto in campaigning and so forth and so on, when the new government comes into office, the very first thing it does, I, I remember J.H. Mason doing that and it's still been done by others. The first thing they do is to extract key messages from their manifesto and hand them over to the National Development Planning Commission to prepare this document that I just quoted from the Constitution. And that's the first step towards, quote unquote, nationalizing the manifesto. It's now being transformed from a party document to a national document. That's the coordinated program. And then there's going to be a policy framework and then the, the plans. And when I was there, I tried to collapse it because the steps were too many. And so typically by the time the coordinated program was done, it would have, the, the party of the day would have been in power for two years already. And then they begin to run uh, things haphazardly uh, afterwards. Mm. So once the manifesto is not translated into the coordinated program, it is presented to parliament. That's when it becomes a national document. And parliament discusses it and adopts it. And then it is passed on in the form of policy framework or policy directions to the various ministries, departments, and agencies, as well as the MMDA. So as I speak with you, if you look within the MMDA's medium-term plans, they all reflect the, the uh, manifesto of the MPP. Similarly, if you look at the sectorial plans, they all tend to reflect that. The problem in terms of implementation and management is this tendency to misconstrue the manifesto as a national development plan. Because the manifesto basically is an aspirational document, a wish list, if you will. And so once you've attained power, you are supposed to now subject those promises to some sort of rigorous analysis see the practical implications involved, the resources and whatnot. But we don't do that, even though it goes through the NDPs and so forth and so on. So I'm sure you've heard this, where a government official is saying, well, we are doing this because it's now it's in our manifesto. So they were setting up because they were in manifesto. Never mind that we had a shortage of lecturers or professors, we didn't have the facilities. So there's been this disconnect between the manifesto's lofty promises and then the realities on the ground. I call it idealism meets realism. So the, the, that's something we are working on gradually. And then it comes to the manifesto itself and how it is uh, prepared or structured. Sometimes, obviously, you did mention. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I was actually going to ask you extensively to, to share with us extensively the process by which um, manifestos are arrived up. But before we move on, because I would like to catch a few thoughts. Um, I would like um, I, I, would, I would ask you to please hold up hold that thought for a minute. Let me let me ask a, side, a question because um, you said something that Kina had already said she wondered about who owned the manifesto. Um, 
But I wanted to ask you, Emmanuel, um, who has been interested in manifestos for a long time and has has encountered um, both party um, puzzlement, if you will, at his interest. Um, and, um, and I'd like to ask him, um, given what, what, what Dr. Nimoy Thompson just said about the, the, the manifesto and the, and the party's relationship to it, um, have you found that the manifesto is, well, it seems clear that the manifesto has a role beyond elections in the democratic process, so that the democratic process is not just the voting. Beyond voting, um, we, we continue in a democratic form of government. And from what Dr. Thompson is saying, the manifesto has a role beyond elections. If that is the case, did you, did you, have you found in your, in your um, research, in your experience, that the parties have this position, that the manifesto translates beyond um, the election? And if so, what explains the secrecy if that's what they're going to do and that's what they expect that um, they will win our votes on the next time around? Do, how can, you, do, can you explain? the secrecy, the attitude of parties towards the manifesto um, and what relationship government has had with it. Thank you very much. I hope you hear me. Do you? Um, I do, but I, I've actually had someone type in that the, the following, the audience following a bit of trouble for hearing you. Oh my goodness. Uh, where's Walter? Chrissy, Walter. Hello, do you hear me? I do hear you very clearly. Okay, let me go on then. Maybe they'll hear it from you. Um, I think the first thing is that, yes, manifestos in parties seems to be instruments, momentary instruments for all the parties because they are not sure they are going to, to be elected or, or yes, uh, into government. And therefore, there is a certain attitude towards it. Of course, parties that do not win elections usually discard it. Okay, after the elections, they probably don't even talk about, the opposition parties don't talk about their manifestos any, anymore. They do not use the manifestos as a document that sets out what they truly believe are the proposals to solve problems. It could define their ideological orientation. It could reflect what truly they've gathered from people in the constituencies or in the areas where they have operated and they are going to pursue those solutions for the communities whom they listen to. But after the elections, they all drop it. I mean, the only party that takes manifesto forward is the winner of the elections. And that's the process that uh, Nimue explained then. Then it goes through certain processes. But there are flaws here. You see, uh, manifestos ought to be really four-year policy documents and they define the platform on which each party would engage critically, the policies of the government. Because in the manifesto, they have told the electorate the perspective they hold, uh, the issues they want to fight for, and the solutions they'll bring to them. And so nothing stops you from being in opposition and say, because I didn't win the elections, I've discarded the manifesto. We have quite a bit of that now, except around 20, 2009, when the late uh, President uh, uh, John Evans Atamil said uh, the NDPC should do well to collect and collate the ideas from the different parties that converge, okay, that really reflect a common position and reflect it 
in, in, in the plants that they produce. At that time, the medium term plan, a four year plan is put on the table, not only the coordinated program of the government, which was expected two years later. So we have not cultivated the culture of seeing manifestos as containing the set of public policy proposals that within a four year time, we think would impact the economy and change it, would solve the social problems, would create jobs, and those ideas are not the monopoly of any one party. But institutional management of manifestos are so weak that as soon as you lose the election, you throw your manifesto uh, uh, away, and it doesn't even become the basis for critiquing government policies in the House and Parliament, and so on and so forth. Mm. In some jurisdictions, this is what happens. In the UK, for instance, uh, party manifestos are mandatory. In Ghana, it's not mandatory. Even when you're registering as a political party, you don't require a manifesto. But in some places, it's mandatory. And for the four years or five years in the UK, for instance, you would have annual conferences and you're drawing on your manifesto to engage the government policies and their implementation. And you may critique it, you may change your perspectives on things, but it is a requirement of every party in parliament and even outside parliament that each year, you tell us what you have done with your uh, manifesto, how you propagated it, how you've used it to influence policies of government, or what changes you see in the problems that you said you would solve. We do not have that here. Two, mm. the civil service plays a very important role in operationalizing manifestos um, because they handle policy, public policies. Your manifesto is just probably some broad statement of an idea that you would pursue. But it's a civil service that knows a lot of what you want to do, whether you want a free senior high, they would be in a position to tell you, oh, there is something going on like that already. So it is in this area that you probably need to emphasize, is it funding? Is it the need for more teachers? Is it schools? Is it what? But in Ghana too, civil servants, cannot touch opposition political party uh, manifestos. Because when you are seen to be holding the manifesto of any party before elections, as a civil servant who has no public policies being proposed, you are tagged as belonging to that party. And that can be used against you. So the only time civil servants seriously take manifestos and see what is the content and how do we operationalize it is after the election and it's strictly the winning party. The manifestos mm -hmm. of the other parties, no matter the content, are all discarded. They don't touch them, they just put them aside. So it is not infusing the ideas, the, the, the complete or the, the convergence of ideas, the complementarity of ideas that will solve some of the problems we are having education, employment, uh, sanitation, water, college. There are sometimes more powerful ideas in the smaller parties. For instance, health insurance came from PNC, but the big parties took it up. They did not even acknowledge <laughs> source. So you do have a lot of these things to deal with. Right. Um, All right. Um, sorry, did you want yeah. something? Yeah. No, endorses everything I said, honestly. <laughs> that, that's probably because I was once in charge of research at IDEG. You didn't mention that in my uh, introduction. But just to add to that, the, the issue of the wily or sneaky nature of uh, preparing 
the manifesto, as Emmanuel himself mentioned earlier, there's a tendency for each uh, party to snoop around and I don't want to say steal, maybe filch or swipe your more diplomatic uh, way of putting it. And it's been going on. And so they tend to hold it to their chest till a very long time. But then it takes us back to one of the reasons we prepared the long-term or what the, uh, the public generally knows as the 40-year national uh, development plan to give all political parties some sort of a common reference point. So that irrespective of who wins or who loses, there's some national aspirations or, or, or vision that we all work towards. Unfortunately, it didn't come, uh, it didn't serve the role that we, want, we wanted it to serve. Hopefully in the future, it would. And it's critical because, especially when a party is in opposition, it tends to be highly uh, unaware of what they will be inheriting if they win on the basis of all those wild promises that they make. They, in fact, for the most part, they're not even aware of the existence of so many policies and they promise to come into power and do something that's already been done or it's already being done, but they are not aware of it. And so as part of the 40-year plan, for example, we also created something called the Policy Almanac that listed all existing policies in Ghana on virtually every topic, such that when, when we get to the season that we're in now, before you go out there and make wild promises, you have a very good sense. I'll give you an example of uh, the special, National Spatial Development Framework that is meant to address slums and ghettos and whatnot. None of them were aware of it. They promised to do all sorts of things. Now, as a result of that, that particular problem exists. And we, even though we are growing, we are urbanizing, we are urbanizing along the ways of becoming slums and ghettos as opposed to well-planned cities because none of these political parties were aware of that. Right. Um, um Thank you. We will come back to that topic because that actually is a very important um, discussion. Um, I'd like to ask Kina, so I want to look at how the, the manifesto is put together now. But, um, and, I, and I'll come back to you, Dr. Nimoy Thompson, since you've put together one before, I, I'm very keen to hear how it was done, in fact. But um, before we come to that, um, I, would like, I would like Kina to, uh, to, to share with us from the standpoint of an observer and one who has keenly and um, thoroughly researched that process, how are manifestos arrived at from the standpoint of a person not involved in the process, but who has to make decisions about um, the elections, about the party, based on this, this manifesto and this lack of awareness of exactly the methodology that, what does it seem to you that is the methodology by which the manifestos are arrived at. I'm sorry, we can't hear you. I think your mic is off. Yeah, yeah. As an observer, as an election worker, <laughs> it seems there is a committee put together. Um, and, and from from previous years, it's been obvious that there is always um, a kind of public face. So the person, the committee may let the public know you can approach or CSOs know, or platforms know, you can approach to make inputs into the manifesto. So there seems to be some um, body that the party puts together with some ideas. Sometimes it may be informed by what has been in previous manifestos. Um, we, we, we like to think that it has a lot of input from the president, the candidate. Certainly it's, a, it's like, um, like what Dr. Mami said, it's a body of very well-informed, 
highly educated, um, I don't like the term sophisticated, but you get the point. People in the party who know about the party's political ideology, perhaps what is already happening on the ground, um, some kind of um, um, policies that Ghanaians would like to see, what their party itself would like to see, and then they may um, be open to inputs from civil society. Um, as, a, as, a, as a person who's worked in previous elections, the secrecy thing is always uh, problematic um, because I, first of all, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, um, if you want to um, develop people, you know, for instance, free education as codified in our constitution, you know you want to improve literacy, you know you want to put better inputs into the schools. Um, so this whole thing about secrecy tends to, I think, go along the lines with, I think slogans, building, maybe, but this is how it appears. And once it's done, it is released to, to, to the public and then election workers and the media take it up. Um, mm -hmm. We are never really clear. Like, I don't think that, uh, like I said, you would get to know who is on the committee and whom you can approach to make input. But I've, um, but but that's it, yeah. Um, and then it comes out. The time is being is being done as a, as an election worker or a member of the media or of civil society mm -hmm. as an external a party a person external to a party putting together mm -hmm. a manifesto. Do you at all times know when it's being put together so that if you wanted to make input, for instance, that you could as an outsider? Oh yeah. Typically, civil society is able to decipher when the process is happening and we are able to decipher who to approach because they've been informed you 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 do investigative journalism around that well but you know you know it's election season so you know who the party people are sometimes the party may itself even say who the person is and right. then you are able to um within that period make contact with uh, the one of I, I think in previous years one of the contacts for some of us was Yofi Grant so you know you track him down you you've made some uh, one page or two page communique and you've made your points and you deliver it to him um, and you make a point sometimes they will grant you a meeting this is very important this is how we'd like you to consider this particular um, if you are going to have a line in the manifesto addressing this particular issue, this is how we think you should look at it and frame it. Um, and the parties have, you know, listened. Sometimes they listen. They, he certainly will not say we are not taking input. They may take input. Um, and then it's done and then it is released. To great fanfare, that has been said, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Jandro, is that how it should be? As a student of democracy, is that how it should be? That manifestos are, are arrived at um, from an observer standpoint. We'll, we'll, we'll come to um, Dr. Nimoy Thompson, who will tell us how it has been done from an insider point of view. But um, simply looking at the theory of democracy, how would we ideally and um, in, in a perfect world, in a perfect theoretical world, how would the manifesto have been arrived at? I'd like to contrast that with what actually happens when Dr. Ninomotovsky speaks, because a lot of theory is, um, is, is factual to a point and then aspirational to a point. So in theory, how should we aspire to get it done? 
I'm sorry, we can't hear you. Okay, I, I can you hear me? I forgot I was uh, muted. Yes. Um, yes, thank you. I was saying that, um, you know, in theory, with respect to the manifesto, it would be ideal. And I like the fact that you said, uh, you know, sometimes there's, uh, you know, a, a discrepancy between the real and the ideal. But ideally, the manifesto should be um, a document that has the buy-in of the uh, party members, contributions from the party members. So it, it is supposed to foster intra-party democracy, okay? So that party members and constituents, and in Ghana we call them, uh, you know, some of the powerful uh, actors, delegates and so on, um, have to have a, a role in, in that. And also, ideally, constituents, the citizenry, those who, um, will be able to understand the issues and, uh, and get their inputs in. It is very, very important that they should be a part of a party's manifesto. So it also, I think, uh, speaks to, I think Dr. Akwete mentioned how it's compulsory in some of the countries like the UK. Um, and it is very, very important that um, in, in we get to have democracy right from the grassroots in making uh, the manifesto, but that doesn't happen all the time in reality. The whole, the entire um, issue is that we want to have a manifesto that um, political party elites, candidates, political party members, members who align with a particular political party will be supportive of the uh, manifesto's policies, will feel that their concerns are going to be addressed um, within the manifesto. How that works in practice sometimes is not always the case, but I know that um, previously you have had, usually the political parties have a technical committee that will put together their concerns, um, strategize and so on. And as somebody said earlier, really keep it close uh, to their hearts for a long time. And, and so uh, theory and practice, you know, we, I think, slowly are uh, beginning to, to, to see the need to get there. Um, I know that this year, earlier this year, the National Democratic Congress, the major opposition party, um, had talked about how its manifesto preparation was going to consult, and they did consult some organizations like the Trade, Un Trade Union Congress and so on, was going to go to the grassroots and also um, consult important organizations. So I hope I've helped you. Uh, to answer this question. Thank you. you have. Um, Dr. Nimoy Thompson, can you share with us from your experience how that, that process begins and how it ends? Yeah, obviously the process would vary in some respects from one party to the other or from one period to the other. For instance, in the current uh, situation, the flag bearer of the uh, NDC, for example, set up an economic advisory and other advisory groups uh, to help him long before the manifesto committee uh, was set up. And I happened, for instance, to be a member of the economic advisory group plus another group. So it wasn't until the manifesto committee was set up by the party that then he then uh, nominated people from the various groups to serve 
on the manifesto uh, committee of the party. So you, there's a kind of a cross membership between those who worked on the advisory uh, groups for the president as the candidate, and then those working on the manifesto as a document for the party and ultimately the uh, basis for a national development framework and plan for uh, uh, the whole country. But in terms of running the, the one for the CPP in 2008, which has been uh, a long time, actually, come to think of it, um, it the, the committee was constituted by the Central Committee. Uh, the manifesto committee, that is, was constituted by the Central Committee, and I was made a chair person of it, along with other uh, uh, members. And then, of course, we had to go out there and determine or decide how we're going to approach it. We mm -hmm. either use a kind of, there are two approaches in this case. You can get a single lead writer to write the entire thing, which is uh, mm -hmm. a bit of a stretch and a bit of a burden also. But the advantage of that is that there's consistency. And then you share with the other members, they provide feedback, you go back, do revisions, and so forth and so on, until it is given to the central committee for approval. Or the other alternative, which we didn't use, was to simply have multiple writers for different sections, which uh, moves it faster. But the, the challenge there is that you have different approaches to writing, different styles, and so forth, different spellings, in fact. And so and that creates its own challenges. But we also have to remind ourselves of the basis that the essence of the manifesto, which is the ideology of the party, which is Nkrumahism. And it was very clear in the manifesto that it's self-determination, it is social justice, it is pan-Africanism, that we cannot, as Nkrumah himself said at independence, that the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. We are, of course, now implementing the, uh, the African free trade area agreement but that that particular ideology had to guide our work in addition to the constitution the director principles of state policy so these were the two main frameworks that then guided our work and then we wrote the specific recommendations or proposals or things that we would do if uh, uh ever we were, uh, we were elected uh unfortunately we were not Ghanaians made uh, the wrong decision at the time but it would have been great if they had uh, because we had a very good document called New Dawn, New Vision. And we thought it, it was, uh, would have been worth it. But in, in, in summary, that's just how the process uh, evolves. After the committee pr presents its work, it must be presented back to the party. Uh, and then the party as a whole, the highest decision-making level of the party will have to uh, approve it. And of course, it will have to be translated into communication uh, uh, sound bites. It needs to be, and they, they, you must adopt a particular technique. Some manifestos are very dense. They're highly technical. Not too many people are interested in that because they don't understand what the hell you're talking about. So you see things like a prim where the primary surplus is uh, this and all the primary balance is in a uh, uh, deficit. We'll put it in a surplus. 99.99% of Ghanaians don't know what the, the primary surplus is. All they want to know is, are you coming to create jobs for me? Currently, a university student finishes a university, they get their first job, they have to pay two ridiculous years in advance. What can you do for me to reduce this uh, bad forbidden practice that makes it difficult for a young person to start life, maybe bring it down to three months as it is done in a, those are the kinds of uh, cocoa and cose issues that the typical voter is interested in as opposed to technical 
jargon. So when I was in, in charge, I tried as much as possible to dispose of jargon and deal with uh, those uh, particular issues. And we've, we've done some of that also in the work that we've done for uh, uh, the former president now. We've tried as much as possible. So you see things like real economy. And for the typical Ghanaian, real economy means nothing. It's as if there's an artificial economy. But basically what they want to talk about is economic growth. So why don't you just say economic growth? Why are you confusing them with real economy? Those kinds of things. Mm. Right. Thank you very much, Dr. Thompson. Sure. Um, this leads me into the into um, a certain thought frame. You were saying that the the manifesto is put together by the technician, the technocrats, and then it's sent to the central committee. So, if you are even a delegate, you only hear about the manifesto after it has been approved by the party's highest decision-making body. The, the manifesto committee is not necessarily made up of technocrats. It could be just about anybody with something to contribute. So okay. as much, and to make it as uh, substantive and relevant as possible, but we try to encourage the inclusion of non-politicians also. Obviously, it's a political document, so the politicians will lead the process. But it's best for you to include people from industry, for example, people from yes. labor on the committee who already belongs to you belong to your party so that you have a more credible thing because it's it's uh delusional for politicians to sit in a room somewhere and think that they know what's best for the business community no it, it takes the business person to tell you that listen uh i have electricity but it's not as reliable as it should if i, I could only get it this way i can create five thousand or 500 jobs more and then you use that as a basis for formulating policies in, in the, otherwise, you come up with vacuum. And as I said, there's been a tendency in the past. It's disappearing now, but in the past, it was all a wish list. If you elect us, we do this, we do that, completely unrelated to reality. And then they come into office and then they start scratching their head and say, well, we didn't know that the situation was so bad or this and that, and therefore we cannot. Well, that's because you did not expand the basis of the, 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 the group that formulated the thing. If you had done that, would have known a lot more. So it's not just technocrats, it's a cross-section of people right. typically led by the politicians who must answer ultimately for businessmen, businesswomen, uh, uh, students, student uh, representatives and all that are typically invited to make contributions to that. Right. This brings me to the space of inclusion. Um, um, I was going to ask um, Emmanuel as um, civil society and Kina as election worker, um, but there's a question here that ties in nicely with it from Vera Haibo. So I'm going to read her question and then, and, and then frame my question around it. So she, Vera asks, what could be the importance of translating manifestos into local languages? And um, I was, the question I'm interested in an answer for right now is the, the, the nature of inclusion. How receptive are political parties to inclusion in the process of creating the, uh, the manifesto? both within their party, because um, by nature, it must be a document um, drafted by a small select group of focused thinking um, you know, individuals who will focus on that matter, study it narrowly and, and put it together, which is not to say, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. The question then is, how do you get everyone to own it? So, um, are political parties sensitive to questions of inclusion from an internal perspective and externally beyond their own party members 
what steps do they make to um, make the, the process of creating their, their manifesto more inclusive? And like Vera asks, would it help, for instance, if they were in local languages? Emmanuel, would you like to take that? Hello? Hello, Dr. Pete? Emmanuel's mic is off. We, we can't hear you. I think your mic is off. Yes, it is. You hear me now. You hear me? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes. Okay, now you hear me. Okay, I'm saying that the preparation of Manifesto 6 at the moment, making it inclusive is challenging. The process so far for all the parties, probably with the exception of governing parties, is pretty much ad hoc. Um, the contents of manifestos are potential public policies. Policies require evidence, analysis, critical thinking to determine which one will solve the problem and how. Now, uh, no, the parties, all of them, have very weak structures for research, data gathering, policy analysis, even collecting information, collecting information from party members and knowing their priorities and so on. What happens, something happens, but it's so ad hoc, and it's such at a high level that it doesn't get to the entire membership or the critical membership of the, of the parties. And let's remember that although parties have members, members have very little influence over policy decisions of the parties, of delegates and candidates for parliament or the presidential. And so uh, for it to become inclusive then, we must move away a little bit away from the excessive investment in propaganda department, uh, media communication structures within the party, and see if the parties can be encouraged to invest in research units, in uh, public education and data collection units, where they collect various views and process them, and they sustain this over a period because the membership of some of the two parties alone, they claim that they are about 2.5 million members. And you need to do this process over four years. So when you combine it to a limited time, two weeks or three months to elections, and that is what you're doing, the question is, what machinery do you have to accomplish this? The party structures just do not have the machinery. So it becomes ad hoc. Yes, the technical teams are formed. Uh, the leaders uh, do very interesting things. Uh, uh, President, late President Bells talked about door to door, and he went to markets too. I mean, millions of members and public and collective try to understand what they are saying and what it means. It's a huge thing. It is important with us that but the parties must have researchers on their own or engage investing researchers or think tanks and so on. Those just focusing on bringing the issues out and how they can be solved. President, uh, uh, former President before spoke about this in 2017, I think when he was addressing his party conference. He said, it is time for parties to have to have, tech, to have specialists, multidisciplinary, whose work is just to focus on getting to understand the problems of the people, how they can be resolved, and doing so in context of what is happening, what resources are available, and what more can be done. They are not politicians. They are the technocrats of the parties. None of the party has a strong technocratic base. The propagandists just have to think about. The second point is that you also have a problem where 
the parties in preparing their manifestos ought to know what is happening in the gov in government. Despite the Right to Information Act, our political parties in opposition do not easily get information from the public service, from the civil servants, from the local government uh, service uh, personnel, from some of the institutions that work closely with government, because even parliamentarians complain they don't get the information they need. So the empirical data you need, the statistics you need and so on, most of it is denied to them. They can't access them. And that creates a problem on your understanding of the reality and how you want to shape it. Then thirdly, I think that inclusiveness would itself require that uh, there are moments where the ideas that are coming out, for instance, access to health, good quality health, or education, or jobs, uh, you take ideas from people at the grassroots. They are the, they are the predominant members of the parties, but they do not have any influence of this process to any large extent when manifestos are, are being prepared. First of all, most members don't pay dues. Okay, so the party doesn't have resources and they are not, in, in between elections, they are really not giving the, the, the recognition that this, they give us the mandate and therefore we must listen to them. And I think those who influence parties are financiers and those who are seen to be founding members of the parties and whatever, technocrats that are really much selected. So there is this gap, and I think going forward, developing our parties or embarking on policies that would reform uh, or improve the conditions for parties to get into policy formulation and getting people involved to articulate to their ideas, to aggregate them, process them and go back to them for them to nod and say, yes, in this way you help us uh, to process our farm payments or you help us get the land we need or the irrigation and so on. I do not for sure know how one village, one town was based on and some sustained engagement and conversation with farmers, okay, across the country and say, well, if you give us a down then we are going to shoot up with our production and so on. So it is a little bit artificial, and it is in the sense that we need to open up space for parties to get into the development integrity. And that is at the local level. And we've kept the parties out of it. The constitution simply says, Article 5 says, look, uh, yes, the parties cannot participate in the local government. They can educate people, but you can't participate in local elections. You can't get into local assemblies. You can't hold any posts there. And, but just educate people for national elections. So they are election machines. And unless we make a reform that makes it really the reality that a party at the local level lives with the people and tries to grapple and solve their problem, which will change the orientation at the structure that you need to be providing support for them to respond to the needs on the ground, not just for elections, but to implement policies that bring about real changes in their living conditions. So the way we've designed a system is not helping us at all. And it's making it very difficult for the parties to come. So it's an exclusionary process, it's very ad hoc. How do we get it systemic, uh, systematically done? And how do we get it sustained over time so that policies are realistic and effective when they are implemented? These are the challenges. Thank you. You see, I spoke for very little time, so. 
It's Kimanian who talks too long, you know, please can you can tell her time. Hina, your thoughts. Yeah, I think um, um, Ima has touched on a lot, but for me, one of my fundamental problems is I cannot identify why people are members of any of the specific parties. In fact, no, let me say, the two big parties based on ideology. So like you can find a young person professional who is at their core, they're actually increments. <laughs> they'll be MPP, you ask them, they'll be like, well, it appears MPP can execute an agenda. Or somebody might say, oh, I just don't like ND. You see, when we superimpose a manifesto into the system and you are talking about inclusion, it's a problem because it may, the, the stuff in the manifesto may come completely out of left field to the members. Not only just the members, for Ghanaians, we should be able to, I mean, we should be able to know the types, if one party says, this is how we want to address this particular issue, it should look familiar to us because by now, we should know what their ideologies are. And we don't seem to have this problem when it's like, say, CPP, because CPP has for a very long time been laying out the ideologies, right? So that when you come to how you make your manifesto inclusive, you don't have a long um, gap because the people are at the grassroots in the villages already when they hear something, they'll be like, oh, of course that makes sense because that's NPP or that makes sense because that's NDC, that's CPP. If the members themselves, because I don't know why people are members of the parties there except for maybe it's not for me grounded in ideology. And when Ima says the structures don't exist, when the people join the parties, again, I know there are no sort of like, I don't think there's any kind of engagement in parties along, this is what we believe in, this is how we address um, problems as NDC, as MPP, this is how we view the um, economic growth, this is how we view social interventions, there's nothing like that. So then, of course, you have a problem with how do people relate to your manifestos? It is particularly worrisome because I think the only two sectors in Ghana that reach all Ghanaians are the religious sector and the political sector. <laughs> so if we are here saying that we have a problem with inclusion on manifestos, we, then we have a huge gap. Um, and, 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 and Ima has laid out a lot of the things. We need to hold parties accountable to ideology. And therefore, those ideologies will form the basis of the strategies they intend to um, implement to solve problems in Ghana. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. And it shouldn't be a secret because we know your ideology anyway. And so therefore, you know, we know you will take this view of it or that view of it. This, come, this is how you are also inclusive. We have, because it is the ideology that, that gives you the basis to treat people in different communities as the same. Because your ideology drives your interventions and what you are going to do. So that's that one. Thank you, Kenna. Um, I'm going to move the discussion onto the relationship between manifestos and national development now. And I'm very keen to, to know, um, to go back and look at the Constitutional Review Commission's um, work. In their report, they, were, they, were, they reported that there was a widespread public concern with the sectionalization of projects. And uh, we've talked about the challenges 
that we have in continuity. Um, I, I want, I would like to hear your, your thoughts on whether the fact that manifestos are party documents account for this sectionalization of projects and if, um, and, and what's, what the continuity challenges um, that are created by that fact are. Um, Dr. Jachajanda, would you like to start? Sure. Um, thank you, Mami. Um, so, um, the, the issue about whether a national development um, plan, in a sense, should be binding on um, all political parties or, uh, so that when they come into power, they should um, follow in that direction. This was a recommendation, um, as you mentioned, by the Constitutional Review Commission set up by the late Professor, President Professor Mills. Um, so I'm going to give you my personal view. Um, I, I think that actually trying to have a binding development plan on, on, um, on parties uh, in, the, in the present and, and to come, party governments, governments in parties and governments. Um, I, I think it goes against um, the democratic ethos itself. This idea of um, the freedom to consult and so on. Um, and, and to change one's mind. And so it can become a bit too static, um, not making way for innovative ideas and new things that may come up, also challenges. However, this is not to say that there should be no framework at all. I, I, I um, would advocate that there shouldn't be um, strict details in the sense of specifications as to what should be done um, particularly with respect to health or education and so on, but that really a broad framework that advocates. And I think here we can take a cue from chapter six of the 1992 constitution, the directive principles of state policy from articles 34 to 41. Um, here we can take a cue from there where the um, government has to, and the state has to take care of uh, people, particularly minorities and everybody Persons of disability has to cater to uh, the needs of women, the needs of the poor, and so on. So um, it is very important that that broad framework is there. And I would add that there needs to be a consensus, an elite consensus. Um, I'm not sure if we've reached there entirely, but to some extent, we may have reached that elite consensus a little bit. If we go back to that um, discussion, I'll just bring where uh, we, you, we, you just spoke about the ideologies. Kina was saying that we need to hold, uh, get the ideologies of uh, the parties and hold them to it. But I, I would argue that if you look at the current two uh, major parties, the NPP in government and the NDC now, there may not be so much of a complete difference between them, particularly if you look at uh, their, their goals to um, provide social protection policies um, for the people. And if you look at, if you take, um, uh, what is it called, policies like the national health insurance um, policy, you take the um, free senior high school education, you take 
um, uh, issues on jobs, sanitation, and so on. There seems to be some elite consensus that whether you're a center-right party like the New Patriotic Party or a, a center-left party like the um, National Democratic Congress, that there is a need to focus on providing some welfare uh, policies for the people. So um, a broad framework that advocates good health, education, sanitation, economic capacity and, and progress for people, jobs, a focus on gender equality, um, you know, reducing the feminization of poverty. Increasingly, you find that 70% of those who are poor in Ghana and around the world happen to be female. So reducing that feminization, trying to um, approach some level of gender equality and non-discrimination of persons with disability, people from certain ethnic groups or I lower status. I jump in here and, and say that from the values that you are, you are listing here, that's basically what the constitution says. So it, yeah. it may be that we don't require any further um, grouping of, of aligning of, of broader goals. Um, but the national development plan is far more specific than that. It, it, it let, let me just clarify something. Hmm. The, the, the directive principles of state policy are just what the name says, directive principles of state policy. They are supposed to guide the preparation of a framework. You may call it, and this is something, if you read the 40-year plan, we discuss all these things because there was at some point some resistance or complaint even about the name. Should it be called a plan? Because somehow some people associated the word plan with the Soviet Union, for example. Even though the United States, the, the mecca of capitalism, for example, has a 100-year, 100, not 40 or 50, 100-year plan for creating jobs split into 10. Ours was 40 split into 10 four-year plans. So there's a section in the 40-year plan where we discuss the various names given around the world. Some call it uh, an agenda, some call it strategy, some call it framework, some call it plan. In all these situations, they are considered high-level vision documents. They are not so specific as to tie the hands of any political party. That doesn't make sense at all because no one can see. And it, to provide some degree of flexibility, we also said that every 10 years, besides the fact that the government of the day, once it has apportioned four years out of the 40 to itself to work with, it can actually make the necessary adjustments within those four years, and even within the year when things change. But every 10 years, parliament review the document and then make changes. Let me just show you <laughs> just a couple of high-level targets. Can I, can I um, oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, okay. What I wanted to, 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 the distinction I wanted to draw was if we're just going to talk about broad value framework, mm -hmm. then that's what we have in the Constitution. If we're going to talk about something more specific, then we're looking at something more like um, the 40-year plan that your, um, your team drew up. Um, but I, I guess my question there was, how does the idea of a plan drawn up um, apolitically fit with the concept of democracy and electoral choice and the idea that um, the people have the right to change their minds wildly 
and head off in the opposite direction from where they said they were last year, they were going to go four years ago. Um, the idea of democracy is not simply that we will progress, but that we will progress as we have chosen. So the idea that we should compel um, all parties to write manifestos in line with a particular plan, as opposed to a particular broad framework of principles, is what I'm asking about. Specifically, that detailed plan, is it possible to make parties draw their manifestos from a fixed point and then say we have a uh, democratic choice? Kina? I hope we're not uh, confusing ideology with dogma. Ideology is simply worldview, approach to doing certain things. And that is perfectly allowed within the 40-year plan. Let me just read a couple of portions of it, like education infrastructure. I'm sorry, Mr. Thompson, I'm kind of running out of time. Okay, just, just two points. Just like to, that. To it, that. So education infrastructure, for example, said that the basic schools with drinking water was 61% in uh, 2018. And that by 2021, it should be 75%. And by 2025, I, I think it should be, yeah, 2025%, 2025, it should be 100%. This is something that all decent human beings, irrespective of ideology, irrespective of party, will agree upon that by a certain date, every single school should have decent, uh, portable water, decent toilets, and so forth and so on. Absolutely. So those are targets. They don't have so a right to how would you, I'm sorry, how, how would maybe one party would decide that we want to solve that problem with private sector participation. Another party would say, okay, we will solve that problem with just state participation. But whatever it is, we all aim at reducing or eliminating this uh, scourge on educational facilities. So it's a high level target that does not in any Let's, way. Uh, can I jump in now? Um, you. I, I, let me be honest, I, I didn't like the idea of the 40-year development plan. I mean, I like regime change. Um, and then I wondered, between what Dr. Thompson is talking about, like the role of, for instance, plants in the civil service juxtaposed with, if parliament did what parliament was supposed to do and didn't give up so much of their power to the executive, what parliament would say? But I mean, it just seemed as, a, as somebody who observes our democracy quite well, the term seemed too long. They had a technical committee that I don't think had any women, and I, and I didn't sign up for that kind of you thing. You're wrong on that. You're wrong. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, we, a lot, of the, a lot of the frustrations we come up with, some of these things we come up with, like a 40-year plan, is in frustration to political parties not being able to implement and make the change we desire. And us not being able to identify exactly what they are doing in line with what. Are you aware and, that the first three years, for instance, are gone out of the 40 years? When people think 40 years, they think, no, there's the first year in the 40 years. The first three years are gone. We could have done a lot. And the 40 Thompson, years was. And Dr. Thompson, I like multi year development plans. So in my youth, I could have been a Soviet. Do I want it to be here? No, let, let, let us do the regime change the Constitution says. Let us be guided by our constitution. Let us hold our parties accountable. Our fundamental problem in Ghana is transparency and accountability. We cannot circumvent any of those. It is the look, democracy is so people energy intense. 
We are either going to put in the energy as a people. All of these things are not going to get us from point A to point B. I do not want to not be able to hold my parties accountable. The constitution says we do a regime change. So we do a regime change every four years. And we, the person who, the person and their party who are coming to power, I am not even concerned about whether, like the, what Dr. Mami has said about the uh, manifesto process engendering further democracy in party. I couldn't care less even about democracy in party. All I want to know is this is what candidate A with party A has said they want to do. I can track what they want to do in line with what they say they stand for. And that's how it's going to be guided, as we know. I guess it's my turn. Yes, I was going to ask Emmanuel to jump in here uh, from a civil society uh, perspective. I, I think the, the reality is this. Um, these days, we know that you can transform an economy in 30 years. You can build an industrial economy. Some countries have done it. And we also know that it doesn't matter whether you're a democracy or or you are an authoritarian state, when it comes to delivering results, the efficiency of your bureaucracy, the technical, technical people around it, the ability to implement what you said you're going to do and sustain it over a period of time to bring about the change that you need. So democracy and admin at some point must meet because it's admin that delivers. Mm. Democracy, I'll do this, I'll do that. When you take all the party manifestos, you find that there is a point at which there's convergence. In the campaign, you don't see it, but when you sit down and say, oh, what is NDC, NPP, CPP, PNC, what do they say they're going to do on health? You find out that different language, but they are all talking about the need to improve healthcare, improve access, improve quality, and so on. That is for the bureaucracy to do. So if you take, for instance, the NDPC, the NDPC is a bureaucracy. It could send the needs of all. I initially didn't like the idea of a 40-year plan, a 50. I said, oh, what are the chances? But I've come to understand it as translating the directive principles of state policy into tangible deliverables, okay, means that you have to have the broad strategic priorities agreed. Isn't that what the governments are elected to do to translate um, our aspirations Mami, into... Also, Mami, let me interject. The governments are elected to work with bureaucracies. The bureaucracies do not do politics. They want to translate your idea. If you say you want to build railways, we want consistency. You'll be voted out based on how you assess, but the railway, the construction of railways will not stop. It's going to go on, and every government will come and take it to another level. It is very important because it's incremental, but it must be sustained. So delivering development, okay, does not contradict the freedom of choice and so on, except that when you have made your ideas known, the question of how you're going to achieve your goals becomes important. Here we are. Hospitals started by one government, or schools started by another, or a bridge started by We have the audacity and to say, well, I, let's forget this. It's taxpayers' money, it's a loan, and yet we need those to improve the lives of people within a certain time. And we've done most of the things from improvement time to now when governments are changed. 
And we see that we've missed generation upon generation of trans transformation. So let us find the convergence and the consensus, which is usually embodied by a bureaucracy that is not belonging to a party. It is the state. In fact, civil servants are now talking about the need to separate the state from parties because currently they don't make those uh, distinctions and it's making the work of bureaucrats extremely difficult. Development requires continuity if you want to change structures. And we don't want to say that because it came from this party and this ideology and so on. Frankly, if you analyze NPP since President Kufor's time, it is not the conservative party we knew, mm -hmm. okay, before they came to power. In fact, you you be told that they've gone left. In ideological politics, you translate. You see when they are shifting left or right. They've gone really left. Look, free senior high school, as me, Moe Thompson showed. In 1952, was it the 52? It was in the party's manifesto. When? 51. 51. Okay. When you go to the US and the UK, you find those ships. Uh, healthcare, universal healthcare, NHS, how they are prisoning. You know the battles they fought, but now they all support it. So the convergence doesn't mean don't be democratic, be authoritarian. No, it means that where we have, have convergence, we should be quick to build the country. His network. Hello? Hello? Okay, I think we've we've uh my ma'am, my can I can I jump in real quick? When I say yeah, that we, we see, it it's not about it look, we should we also know to hold our leaders to account with how they make use of the bureaucracy and the civil right, go ahead. Let me go So what we have to look at, what we have to look at is that the broadest agree on the broad priorities. Let's probably agree on the targets. Within 10 years, can we transform something? Can we change our economy? Maybe not just producing cocoa we export, but say processing and the various other byproducts are on the table. We are getting it, we are adding value. And it can be done, but you need a technocracy to, to push it once it's adopted. Yes, mm. I agree. NDPC is not a party, it doesn't belong to any party. It's a technocracy. So let us allow technocrats to do their work. Let's not make ideology, party, and so No, there is a state structure that has the competence and the capacity to take ideas, process them, and let politicians agree and pursue it aggressively. Let them compete to deliver so that we can have results that satisfy our needs over time. But political heads will change. Political parties will come yes. with smarter ways and smarter uh, strategies yes. for delivering. That doesn't change. But once they bring it up, the technocrats will take it and process it and say, this is how we can take it forward. And that is how, so that we move away from, don't touch this because it's politically owned by that party. And we should stop this political ownership nonsense. I think- It's the taxpayers' money. I have a question that um, you seem to have answered, but just so that the line is between. You have an echo. And the line is breaking. People need to mute their mics. I'm almost united. They need to mute their mics. Yeah. Is this better? 
Yeah, it's better now. Okay. Um, I had a question from David Akpabli, which um, was quite in line with what you were saying. So I would, I would like to read it so that um, as you sum up your, your, your thoughts on that statement, you can um, directly address it. He asks that, um, he asks how we can make our political parties adopt a common development agenda to foster growth and progress, given how partisan our politics have been and how the, the, the need to appear to, to, be, to support your party's position has made it impossible for us to support even something like the 40-year development plan. Um, so his question is, how can we get all of our parties to this consensus we talk about? We always say that we need a consensus, we need a consensus. And you say we see a, something, something of a consensus if you look at the manifestos. But how can we go beyond seeing it in the manifestos if you will bother to sit down and do the comparative reading to seeing it in our political practice, in our political culture? Well, it, the, the question is, where do you uh, expect the consensus? Is it within parties or across parties? We thought that from a national development perspective, you need consensus, a consensus across parties. And so we worked with six different political parties, including, of course, the NDC and the MPP. But in politics, if you've been in the public sector, people always have their own little agendas. But what I find particularly baffling and quite frankly disturbing is people involved in development who somehow embrace things like the SDGs or MDGs, but then when it comes to the 40-year plan, they don't favor that. Those are two frameworks, 15 years, 15 years. That gives you 30. The MDGs went back to 1990, 10 years. So that's 40, more or less imposed by the UN. We are okay with that. But we are not okay with the 40-year plan based on our own history. Let me just give you a quick summary of what, since the government hasn't published it. The 40-year plan is made up because we proceeded on the basis that development is history. And therefore, we must, first of all, before we come up with GDP and exports and so forth and so on, we must know where we came from as a country. So there's a whole section of it on the history of Ghana. You read it, you get to understand how the Lebanese and Indians, for instance, got to, were brought in by the British specifically to prevent the emergence of an, an indigenous entrepreneurial class, something that continues to exist to this day. And unless you understand that historical context, you cannot develop Ghana for Ghanaians. You end up building the skyscrapers we now see in Accra that are charging $3,000 a month. How many Ghanaians can afford that? So you need that perspective. There's the economic aspect. There's the environmental aspect. There's the institutional aspect. None of them are exclusive, are mutually exclusive with political party programs. So let us have that high level thinking. Our universities are in a mess today in terms of resource uh, uh, scarcity and so forth and so on. Because 40 years ago, no one had a vision that in 2020, our population will be 31 million and that we need to have this number of uh, classrooms at Legon or Tech or build this number of universities. Have this, we, no one had that vision, zero. We're doing what we're doing now. Only for us to not try and catch up. So it is, critical that every nation, there's not a single serious country out there that doesn't have a, a long-term development plan. The fact that you don't know about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. There's a Ghanaian in Norway who was a vociferous critic of long-term planning until I showed him the 50-year long-term plan for Norway, and then he shut up. I just mentioned the 100-year jobs program for, for the Americans. Turkey is now coming to buy our airport. It is part of their long-term plan. They are celebrating their 100th anniversary in 2023. 
And at that point, they want to show their dominance around the world. The 40-year plan was supposed to start in 2018 and end in 2057 to coincide with Ghana's 100-year anniversary. So whether we plan for it or not, whether we believe in 40-year planning or not, the 100th anniversary of Ghana will arrive in 2057. It is what our children will inherit. As I speak with you, after 63 years, our sanitation coverage is only 18%, less than 20% after 63 years. And we have said that, no, we need to accelerate that. That's why we set ambitious targets. We never said anything about the operational plans. Those operational plans will come from party manifestos. And those manifestos will then be implemented to work towards the higher national vision. So first, if you have a child today, you need at least 22 years to take them through university. 22 years minimum. And we are not interested in that. We want four years, for you. Then the political parties are going to keep jerking us around. They'll come four years, get whatever is it. They won't move out and we'll be moving in circles. Imagine 18% sanitation coverage after 63 years. And by the way, if you read uh, uh, the seven-year development plan, even though it was seven-year development plan, in there, it talks about the need. In fact, they were going to prepare a long-term plan from the seven-year development plan. And they say, and I love the expression they use, they say, unless we have a long-term plan, we will remain prisoners of our past. I wish I could show the, the evidence of the fact that we remain prisoners of our past. Look mm -hmm. at Coco. Currently, as I said, why is the city suffering? Because no one has made any serious attempt to move us from Coco. Yes, we have oil, but the money goes somewhere. Yes, we have gold. The money goes on. The only thing that comes in is Coco. And the population has moved from 6 million to 31. So these are some of the structural problems that we identified. And we said, OK, for each party that comes in, it's not a single 40-year plan. The 40-year plan, as I said, and let me repeat that, it is divided into 10 four-year plans. four-year plans is right. Aligned with 10 elections starting in 2020. Between now and 2057, there will be 10 elections. In fact, the 10th election is in 2056. And every single child who was born in Ghana in 2016 will qualify to run for election in 2056. By, there will be 40 then. So the future is already here. Why are we afraid to prepare for it? And rather get so caught up with the past and say, well, manifesto, manifesto. Manifesto ultimately must serve a higher purpose. It can never be an end in itself. And suddenly it cannot be a development plan. The role of the manifesto, given our understanding now of uh, what the development plan is, is, is intended to achieve. Right, and why it's critical for us to have a development plan, even if we don't agree with the contents um, as set out by this particular um, team, that it seems um, difficult to object to that we should have a plan. Um, we are asked to have retirement plans and health plans, so I, I, I don't imagine that there can be anything theoretically wrong with the idea of a long-term country progress plan. Having agreed that we need this plan, how do we make manifestos relate more central to how we assess our governments in light of the fact that our governments would then be, um, let's, let's say for, for argument's sake in an ideal world, that we've accepted this 40 year plan and we have um, created a, a, a uh, I'm not gonna I'm gonna say. There is supposed to be a monitoring and evaluation uh, from, so yes. there will be periodic reports. Let me 
But uh, even before what I'm that, saying, we're going mm -hmm. to assume for this discussion at this point, I'd like us to accept that we have a development plan. It's 40 okay. years long. Okay. And, um, yes. and, and we're progressing on, on the basis of that. How do we make manifestos yes. more central to how we assess our government mm -hmm. if we have a development plan? Um, Dr. Albert Barnes asks um, a question that I think is, is, in, is related to the idea of holding um, governments more accountable for their manifestos in terms of, a, of, of, the, of the plan. He asks, what do you think the Electoral Commission or, the, or Parliament can do to make the publication of a political party's manifesto mandatory prior to a future election? And, um, and to that question, I would add, should manifestos be, for instance, judicially enforceable? Um, let me start with Dr. Jechidando. Thank so, you. Uh, yes. Um, hmm. should, um, your question is, should manifestos be judicially enforceable? I think, yes. We're thinking more broadly around the question of how do we make manifestos more central to how we assess the performance of, of, of government going into an election. Thank you. I, I would argue that the manifestos are increasingly becoming um, um, important for, for citizenry, for the electorate, and uh, governments are going to be held accountable uh, for their manifestos. I, I think that the important thing is to really, uh, the important thing is to really disseminate these manifestos um, early on, very early on, at least a year before the elections, and let the electorate know what the parties, each party stands for, um, so that at the, uh, ballot box, I think at, at the end of the day, if we are talking about democracy, can you hear me? People have their mics on, so ask them to turn it off while she's speaking. Yes. Okay. Um, Emmanuel, could you turn your mic off, please? Yes, it's, it's Nemo's fault when he was speaking. <laughs> okay, blame me for that. Please, so, Dr. Jandor, yes. please carry on. So I was saying that I think at the end of the day, if we are talking about a democracy, then accountability has to be exacted at the ballot box. Um, but at the ballot box, how do the electorate, how do we ensure that the electorate is able to um, exact accountability and hold governments accountable. It means that they have to be informed. It means that they have to be um, educated and they can be educated uh, uh, with respect to the local languages, uh, translation of manifestos into the local languages and so on. Um, but to link it to, so I, I think that manifestos um, are important. I'm not sure if, they should be judicially, uh, how should I say, parties should be held judicially accountable for, for those because um, manifestos are not, and they can't, I don't think they can be legally, um, you know, they are not legal documents per se. They are, they are not laws. They are um, basically a program of action that is, is put there. But increasingly, I, I see that it is helping political parties themselves to be more focused, more issue-based, and also to be able to put out what they want to do um, to the electorate. And for instance, um, at the Department of Political Science, we had a survey um, about a year and a half ago 
that sought to look at the performance of the current government after two years. And it was very interesting that most of what the, the constituents, those who answered the questions, who participated in the survey, were looking, they were talking about um, points, uh, points of action that had been put out in the um, current government's manifesto. And they were holding, they were in a sense assessing the government uh, based on, on those points of action in the manifesto. Now to come back briefly to what I was saying, I, I wasn't allowed to really finish, but what I was saying was that a broad framework is important. That is in the directive principles of state policy. We, the question I am wondering is why Ghanaians, if the national development planning, uh, 40-year national development plan, is it a partisan? Is it a political? If it is, why hasn't there been a buy-in into that into the national development plan. I agree that there should be a broad framework, but I would argue that the specific policies, you cannot force a particular government to, uh, uh, um, you know, go with particular uh, specific policies. And what from Dr. What Dr. Nimoy Thompson is saying, and I have had occasion to look at the national development plan a couple of years, the, the 40 year when it was in a draft um, to look at it. It's not specifying specifically, but, what I was trying to speak to was the fact that it should be binding, you know, a binding, and I'm against this idea of a binding development plan. I think that's what I was trying to say. Uh, so at the end of the day, we need to educate and disseminate information at, uh, how should I say it, uh, the level of the masses so that they will understand. And I would argue that they are beginning to understand so that they will be able to hold their, um, the, whatever government is in power, uh, accountable. But the idea of the consensus, political consensus, elite consensus, I think is there generally. We are a bit too partisan. I think that is the problem. <laughs> so anyway, let me stop uh, there and allow Dr. somebody. Dr. Kweti, um, I'd like your thoughts on that question. How can we make our manifestos more centrally, um, more central to how we assess our government's tenure? Hello, your, your microphone is, is, yeah, mic is off. You can turn no, it no, on. Mommy, uh, can I? Sorry? Okay. Hello? I said this happens because of you, boy. Can I take this up? I have a set of proposals I'm giving to you straight away. I think manifestos, any party that wants to register as a political party, must have a four to 10 year manifesto. To, to, it must be a requirement for registration. Why? Because you want us to give you a mandate to accelerate the development of our country in all fields. You may have different priorities, but we should know up an issue, what ideas, what philosophies, what ideology drives you, what concrete proposed areas you want to, so that we can achieve the goals we want to achieve by the time we get to 100 years. It is not at the moment, and we should insist on that. Two, and it's just like that in other countries anyway, if you're party, you must have, and we must have an annual account where every party, whether you're in government or opposition, must account for what you've done about your manifestos, how you've propagated the ideas, 
how you've drawn on the ideas to input into decisions that the governing party is doing, even in the debates in parliament, and how you're critiquing, maybe because of your activities and so on, changes are occurring. So every year you must be assisted to do this. And that kind of work requires state funding. Our parties must be funded because the state has interest in economic and social policies that parties in opposition or government will pursue. It must take interest in strengthening their capacity to pursue this. And therefore, annual conferences like it's held in many European countries are state funded and it's mandatory. Here it is not. You don't even think you need a manifesto, but if you're a party, you must have your socioeconomic program and policies that are able to transform the country. Then we think that you must open local government to tone down this excessive partisanship. If an NDC or MPP president is to work with NDC chief executives, they first, after elections, through the NDPC and the bureaucracies, must agree on a common program of work for the four years. And you find out that what they are going to choose will be the converging things, but they also make room for peculiar solutions to local problems. Now, that still may, political still may, that impeding our development will be broken through. That's when you stop elections to focus on development. That's why there are election seasons in some countries and others don't have it. So we need to open that space where development, delivery of services, thinking around the uh, table between districts, uh, our mayors and our president and our ministers will not be a partisan, strictly my party people. But in fact, the president knows that he's directly elected and therefore he has to work across the 260 uh, is that districts we have now. And he has to therefore to work with other mayors who are elected on CPP, PNC, women's parties and whatever that will come. It is going to end the political still need. But it's also going to bring technocracy, respect for bureaucracy, respect for people who are not there to do uh, uh, partisan things, but they want to translate ideas into concrete deliverables so that we begin to see the transformation we need to see it structurally. And I think if this is done over a period of time, these are areas that we can build consensus and we can begin to see that our politics is also becoming development oriented because after elections, our leaders, we've designed the structure in such a way that our leaders are compelled, those elected in local government are compelled to work with the government, uh, central government, which has only one president who can come from any party elected by the majority of the people. That's, those are the proposals we have. Can I address some of those? Thank you. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to ask Hina and Dr. Nimoy. Thank you for endorsing it, all of you. All right. So basically, some of these proposals uh, already existing. They already exist in one form or another. I'm sorry. Um, if I may, I'm running out of time. I have okay. one question I would like to take, and then I would like your thoughts, um, um, yours and Kina's, on this question of how to keep our manifestos central. Okay. To so let me just address these these proposals that were put out there. I may, if I may remind you that I'm running out of time, so if you could make it quick, please. Okay, no problem. The, your, you. your, your mandate is four years, so I don't understand how you propose a 10-year plan. Realistically, the most you can aspire to is four years. If your mandate is renewed, then maybe another four years, then you get a total of 10. There's already a mechanism for monitoring the implementation of a manifesto. It's called the APR, the Annual Progress Report, which is already embedded 
in the program. So it's not, let's not try to reinvent the wheel. We have the APRs for both for the national and local also. Uh, those other countries that Manuel talked about, yes, they may do all those things, but they also don't have the unique uh, feature of, let's say, NDPC, whose duty it is to operationalize manifestos on behalf of incoming government. And then four, uh, making something legal doesn't necessarily mean that the incoming governments will uh, uh, respect them. For instance, there is Act uh, 815 that specifically required the preparation of a long-term national development plan. When this government came into power, it didn't do anything with the law. It simply ignored it. And of course, no one has raised that. So the fact that you legislate something doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to follow it. Even though they, they ignored it and dismissed the long-term plan, they then prepared Ghana Beyond Aid, which they now also want to impose on others, even though they reject. So that all these political considerations, the politics of pettiness, I didn't do it and therefore I won't embrace it even though I will embrace the senior minister, for instance, was in parliament during his confirmation hearings. He said he would never accept anything more than 10 years. And in the same sitting, sitting, he then said he was in favor of the SDGs, which are 15 years. So you see the contradictions and the high cost we pay for politics of pettiness. It was done by the previous governments who are rejected. But then not being aware of that, he said he favors a 15 year plan by the United Nations, which followed the MDGs, which by the way, he initiated in 2001 when he was uh, Minister of Finance. So we need to look at these human or, or, or elements of politics. It's not all objective. It's not everything that we can touch. Some of them, you, you, it's like pornography, as they say, you can describe it, but you know it when you see it. The kinds of pettiness- we're looking at the manifesto as an electorate, as a country, when we're voting, we say, well, you said four years ago you would do X. Exactly. And four years later, we haven't seen any sign of it. So we don't believe you now. How do we get to that space where the reason we are saying yes or no has something to do with what they said they would do versus what they did? That's okay. what I'm saying. That tracking is already trapped. So you can, there are two things. There are two mechanisms we can, or we can add. A, there's an existing mechanism of the APR, which already traps every promise made in the manifesto. Unfortunately, it is not popular enough for the public to know. But trust me, Parliament sit, does have sittings on it every year, and they see what the government says it but has to do. The My question is, how do we get to where the electorate is? able to do this with can the I ask? manifesto. Uh, can, I, can I have your thoughts, please? We'll have, yeah. to yeah. That's yes. we have to popularize it. That let but the public yes. know I... that there's already a mechanism in place for monitoring. We can extract okay. the manifesto because, for instance, the, the office of uh, Dr. Kotoa, for example, was set up specifically to monitor manifesto promises, even though it, it is called monitoring and evaluation, a function that NDPC already uh, uh, performs. But that particular office was meant to monitor the party's manifestos, which we thought was very narrow, but that's its mandate. And now the representatives of the people, the public, the, the parliament already uh, uh, analyzes the APR. So it's a question of publicizing them, but they okay. are done can I, already. Can I jump in? The biggest crisis facing us is transparency and accountability. So it is nice, I mean, Dr. Thompson has educated us, but all of this does not inform what somebody in my village, when they enter the booth, is going to vote on. And because we have such a problem with transparency, 
it cuts across, it diminishes most of the outputs we, are, we hope to get from our democracy. And it touches on issues of inclusion. What we need is, so first of all, I, one of my biggest problems in civil society, of which I am a member, we need to find ways in which we ratchet up our engagement with all Ghanaians so that at all times there is an open channel with information flowing in the languages in accessibility formats for Ghanaians to juxtapose and put against what the political parties are going to say. Because mm -hmm. this is Ghana, when have we not had a plan? That was Vision 2020, here we are. If we are unable to hold our leaders to account because our citizens do not have the information, it really doesn't matter what is in your plan. I mean, Ghana is brilliant. We have people to do plans. We can hold our leaders to account as to how they work with technocrats because we also know a Ghanaian is a social interventionist. And thanks to Kwame Nkrumah and CPP, we know of an era in Ghana in which political uh, elites work very well with technocrats. In fact, created technocrats. So our problem is transparency. Our problem is accountability. And sitting on top of that is the sheer lack of engagement and information we, we, we as Ghanaians have with our fellow Ghanaians. And so that this, these issues that are coming out always only come out in election years. And then we want to find out how people can, you people hold our, their leaders to account based on the information they have and an, an understanding we have built over the next four years. If you do that, you may not even need long plans. But our, for our people to be able to have the kind of, and, and, and it's not about functional or non-functional literacy. It is about credibility. It's about flow of information. It is about presence. So civil society is very present in my life. A certain level of discourse is very present in my life, but it is not present in the majority of Ghanaians whom we expect to make electoral decisions. So I, I, I you know, so I have moved beyond manifestos and plans. If you're going to have a plan, you educate Ghanaians. If you're going to have a manifesto, you educate Ghanaians. If you do not have a budget of engagement, that mirrors how much you are going to pay the technocrats and the, and the rooms you rented and the food and the, and, and, and the consultation fees, don't even bother. Because if what you are doing, number one, we always need to ask ourselves, on whose behalf are we doing the work that we are doing? And the people on whose behalf we say we are doing these things, are they aware of what we are doing? Do they have a buy-in? Can they say in Fanti, in Gonja, in whatever language, this is what Ghana is about? Because since we can't do that as non-political people, the politicians, they do not have to take us seriously. It wouldn't matter what proposals we propose. We are fundamentally unable to engage with Ghanaian citizens in spaces that they need to be engaged in. So much English. Why? Kina, I'm going to have to cut you short, even though you are giving some very interesting thoughts, because we're completely out of time. We've gone over to Not only, we are completely out of, and I completely agree with what Iman Ima said about local governance. Because when you go on the ground, it's very different from what people, everybody is thinking about in Accra. 
or yeah. even in Accra, in certain spaces in Accra. So okay. we, we Thank you. Cut you off at this time and, um, and ask for closing comments from Dr. Detijando. Um, and we'll have to end on that note because we're, we're supposed to be here for an hour, 45 minutes, but this conversation has been so riveting. We've been here for two hours and five minutes already. Um, and we do need to wrap up. Um, so Dr. Detijando, I'm sorry to pressure you, but I can only give you a minute to round off your thoughts. What would be your take-home thoughts for your for the listeners um, on this program today? A minute. Oh wow. Well, thank you, ma'am. Yes, in line with um, what Kina has said. Does um, anyone Thompson? Can you mute your your your? Sure. Sure. Please. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, no, there was an echo, but please go ahead now. Hello. Um, I think going forward, it is very key for us to be able to disseminate information. And how do we do that? Even I, I, as we were speaking, I just thought of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can we disseminate information like we have done about the pandemic, the way we have been able to disseminate information and guidelines managing this pandemic um, to a large extent so that even though the masses, many um, of the citizens get the, even the pronunciation wrong. Hand sanitizer, this, that, that. At least they know of its existence. They know that there's some disease. Some don't believe in it, but they know. There has been some kind of can we do going forward, especially I'm sorry. No, it's fine. We couldn't hear you for a minute. Can you, can you hear me? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So I'm just saying that going forward, we need to think about innovative ways I'm sorry, Dr. Tetsiano, we can't hear you. We're going to take somebody else and then we'll come back to you. Because for me, the key is to be able to. All right, okay. Um, Dr. Nima Thompson, can I give you a minute to round off, please? Just a minute. Well, first of all, I, I got to thank you for this. I think there's a lot more going on than we have covered here. Uh, a lot of the proposals made for new initiatives and institutions can probably best be entertained in terms of strengthening existing institutions and mechanisms as opposed to building new ones. I do quite a bit of work besides NDPC, I do quite a bit of work in the districts and there's quite, there's quite a lot going on there. Some of it with challenges of course, but there's also a high degree of interference by the government, the central government. I know of a case recently where the district assembly was trying to collect taxes and someone complained to the political party in Accra, the party called the district say stop collecting the taxes because you are making the government unpopular. These are the kinds of challenges we are facing. So yes, beyond the big English that we've spoken here today, there's that real politic going on out there that hopefully the professionals, the, the practitioners, the civil society, the academics will ultimately find the solutions to do their research and their work. And thank you very much for providing the platform for us to have this very stimulating uh, discussion today. Thank you so much. Dr. 
Dando, do you want to finish up your thought now? Let's see if you, if we can hear you clearly. Okay, I still can't hear her. So, Dr. Akwiti, Mano, would you, would you hand off? Um, I can only give you a minute. Can you please tell me? I think more than ever this year, manifestos are going to be so important. And education of the public on the manifestos is, is going to be the challenge we're all going to face. Why? Uh, both parties, MPP and NDC, have said because of COVID-19, they are not going to do the big rallies, you know, the mass rallies and so on. In those rallies, even when they launched their manifestos, nobody heard exactly what it was they were talking about and nobody found the documents to read because they are not printed enough for distribution. But this year, because they'll be doing radio, especially they'll be using radio, the virtual space like we're doing, and probably Zoom and others, we, are, we have to educate the electorate so that they will listen attentively, understand what they're saying, and ask them the questions that they think would address their issues at the local level. So there is that need. It's a unique opportunity. I hope the parties will publish the manifestos in good time, will put them on the social media. They wouldn't say that the ideas will be stolen. So I think manifestos must be, the, the, the parties must be giving a time frame to publish their manifestos, all of them, probably at the same time. So nobody feels like my ideas will be stolen. They should be very accessible to the public and so that we can use them to educate the public and they can be asked questions, whether as MPs or presidential candidates or our parties campaigning. That is, thank you for this opportunity and for a little bit of propaganda in the interest of citizens of Ghana. Okay. Thank you, Thanks. Dr. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. Dr. Jeshitando, um, we can hear you now. Can you um, have your closing thoughts? Thank you so much. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here um, and to have been part of this discussion. Uh, I was just uh, saying that, and I think some of my colleagues have said it, that going forward, we really need to, um, in this uh, pandemic era, make use of radio, um, more radio, local language, um, information flyers, um, you targeted build, uh, you know, bullet points, on billboards, even WhatsApp videos are making the rounds now, but it's just that sometimes you're not sure which is fake and which is, is right. But basically an opportunity for online public engagement. At the same time, we have to be careful to know that not everybody, majority of the electorate does not have access to these computers and internet data and so on. So we have to strike a balance in terms of uh, disseminating the information. And then to round up, I just wanted to say that um, Really, and I, I had wanted to mention this earlier, but I, I forgot or didn't get the chance to. There's this uh, almost of a pandemic of non-finished projects, you know, non-completed projects in Ghana. Um, uh, and there was one study that said 20% of all local government investment expenditure was wasted because uh, so much was not completed. So I think in, 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 in this, it, it is very important that we have the manifestos and then we have um, accountability, we take governments, uh, you know, we hold governments accountable, but then also find a way, and this is a challenge going forward, how do we find a way to minimize the non-completion of uh, projects from previous uh, governments? 
So um, I guess this is what I have to say. Thank you so much um, for this opportunity again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. I'd like to say thank you to all of my panelists. Can I, I did give you a minute, didn't I? I haven't given you a minute yet. Okay, then let me let you have a minute to round off your thoughts. Your mic is off. Your mic is off, Kina. I just want to say that at a minimum, when it comes to education, that we have to make a concerted effort to make sure that NCCE at least gets its money to do public education in elections. Because borrowing money from donors, this never happens. And then we always talk about, we have lofty goals where education of the public is concerned. Oh, we must educate the public. The main public institution doesn't even get its funds. So we must rally around that as well. But I want to um, go um, address Dr. Mami's thing about um, not continuing projects. I'm, I'm out of time. I'm really sorry. I'm out of time. I'm completely out I will have to sign off. I'm completely out of time. Um, <laughs> my, 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 my technical hey. team is not a <laughs> That's okay. You did well. Thank Sorry. You so My technical team is prompting me that we are going to get kicked off in a minute. So I, would I will have to sign off. Thank you so very much. Thank you um, very much. Fascinating conversation. I have never actually enjoyed thinking about manifestos as much as I have today. Um, wow. <laughs> thank you so very much. For thank you. Thank you. For your thoughts. It's been a, a, a fascinating discussion. Next week, I hope our participants will join us when we look at how our campaigns uh, are financed. I have requests on the Q&A for access to the development plan. So Dr. Nimoy Thompson, as you said, we must popularize our mechanisms for accountability. So hopefully your office and um, your work you will you'll make you'll, you'll make that available um, more widely to the public, even if you don't get um, funding from the state, as many institutions don't. Um, we'll be looking. We'll be looking. I'll be looking out for Dikro in, um, in in the next elections. And please let us know if there's some way people can volunteer. If there's something people can do, we can't talk about greater accountability and just sit still, as you said. Democracy is people and energy intensive, and I would like to leave on that note. Democracy is people and energy intensive. So if we want our politicians to be accountable, we must read the manifesto, some version of it that can be understood. We must ask them, did you do it? And we must check if they have the capacity to do what they said they would do. Thank you very much for joining us all today. Um, have a very good week.